Hello and welcome. My name is Sophia Besch and you're listening to the CER podcast. Hello, I'm Ian Bond. I'm Director of Foreign Policy at the Centre for European Reform. And I'll be talking to Agata Gostinska-Jakubowska and Camino Mortero-Martinez about the Rome Summit commemorating 60 years since the signature of the Treaties of Rome. So, Agata, if I can start with you. The Rome Summit Declaration will apparently refer to unprecedented challenges to the EU and certainly there are plenty of them, the Eurozone crisis, the migration crisis, Brexit, protectionism in the US, Syria, the Balkans, and terrorism, which is very topical today in London. And then there are some challenges that probably the Declaration will not mention explicitly, particularly worries over the strength of democratic institutions in Central European countries like Hungary and Poland. So does the EU have any reason to open the champagne and celebrate in Rome? Uh, obviously, uh, the, the EU is or has been bested by a number of crises that you just uh, uh, enumerated. But if we look back into the continent's history, um, undoubtedly the European project has been a um, very successful peace project. What uh, the uh, European Union managed to achieve uh, was basically bringing peace, maintaining peace on the continent, but also promoting um, democratic values and human rights outside of the EU borders, something that perhaps not everyone is perfectly happy about when the EU has been talking to China or to other third powers. But I think there is no question that the EU has been a power of example. The problem is that uh, many uh, European citizens uh, who were born, you know, after uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall or after the fall of the Iron Curtain, they simply do not remember uh, what inspired the founding fathers to uh, work towards the uh, United Europe. So I think that when European leaders meet um, in Rome, uh, they should definitely remind the younger generations that the EU has been actually the longest, or basically the 60 or even 70 years, has been the longest peace period in the continent's history. Hmm. Well, that's a very good point about the past, but what about looking forward? I mean, is this just an occasion for, uh, uh, for a bunch of, um, as it were, old men and women uh, to get together and uh, drink champagne and eat tiramisu mm -hmm. and talk about the good old days? Or do they actually have a, a forward-looking agenda and concrete objectives that they want to achieve through the Rome Declaration? So that will be a more difficult bit. I think that uh, taking a, a stock of what happened of EU's achievements is actually much more easier than looking uh, into the future and coming up with a, a coherent uh, vision for the future of the uh, European integration. And this is where I expect there might be uh, some difficulties for member states to agree. And one of those, you know, perhaps points of disagreement could be how the EU should be um, uh, basically moving uh, moving forward. Should it be perhaps an EU of multi-tier EU or, you know, should sort of muddle through as it has uh, up till now? Yeah. So the, the member states are still fighting about the declaration, and I guess mm -hmm. you just sketched some of the points that they're likely to be fighting about. It wouldn't be an EU summit without a last-minute mm -hmm. fight about the declaration. But what, what do you think that the final outcome will be? What do you think the, uh, the key points in the declaration yes. are going to be? 
that people should take sure. away from this? So uh, the number one priority for European leaders uh, gathering in Rome will be basically to show EU's unity uh, in addressing the challenges that you just mentioned. Apparently, I uh, will probably see a reference to existential challenges, right? Not only kind of a uh, you know, difficult moments in EU's history, but something which could lead to, to breakup of the EU. So this is a, a kind of a change in tone. Uh, what the EU27 uh, leaders will try to do is basically to uh, to send a message across uh, both to the UK, but also to the um, uh, Europe's neighbours uh, that the EU is united in addressing those challenges. Mm. Well, you, you very nicely refer to the, uh, the, the ghost at the feast there, yeah. Because uh, Theresa May announced in February that she would not be going to Rome. She clearly doesn't want to be at a party where everyone else is celebrating a union that she's trying to forget. But will the EU refer at all to Brexit, either in the declaration or in anything else it may say? Or will we get any other clues about the Brexit negotiations from this summit? I don't think that the EU will refer directly to the result of the referendum or to the forthcoming negotiations. I think, you know, obviously um, EU leaders are sad to see Britain gone, but there was the period of sadness after the referendum. But I don't think it will be anything controversial if I say that they want to show that, you know, bygones are bygones. And now we have to uh, move on and, and get ready for those negotiations and uh, basically stick together. This is something which the message that they will try to uh, send, send across to, uh, to Prime uh, Minister Theresa May. Mm, very good. All right. Well, let's get away from Brexit. And Camino, I, I'd like to turn to you now and talk a bit about one of the things that will be on a lot of Europeans' minds today, which is safety and security in Europe. Uh, yesterday, we had the, this attack in London, and of course, we were marking the anniversary of the much more terrible terrorist uh, assaults on Brussels last year. So how much progress has Europe made in making itself safe and secure for its citizens? Um, I'm going to have to agree with Agatha here and try to um, shed a little bit of a positive light on the European Union at the moment. Obviously, there have been um, horrible terrorist attacks all, all over Europe for the past uh, three, four years. And um, at every time we think, you know, like, uh, we are not safe, the European Union is not helping us. I just read that the Polish Prime Minister has linked the attack to the refugee crisis. And of course, we are always going to try to find scapegoats on this. Um, however, the the European Union has actually made a lot of progress on its counter-terrorism and in security policy ever since the Charlie Hebdo attacks in Paris uh, in 2015. So I think we need to look at, at this um, from a little bit of a positive side, as I'm saying, because obviously there are things the European Union can do, there are things the European Union can't do. And in the case of domestic terrorism, there is very little the European Union as, as an organization can actually, can actually do. However, in terms of sharing intelligence, in terms of pumping up the databases, in terms of uh, protecting Schengen better than we've done over the past 30 years, um, I think the last three years have seen an incredible development. Obviously, there are still things to be done, but I think that what we've seen in the last three years, we wouldn't have seen if we hadn't had both the refugee crisis and, uh, unfortunately, all these terrorist attacks in place. 
But I, I don't think it's just the British pumping themselves up when uh, they claim that quite a bit of the progress that's been made in uh, police and law enforcement cooperation has been driven by the, the UK. So is there a worry that um, with the UK leaving and with the British director of Europol going, that in fact uh, it will be more difficult to sustain this progress in law enforcement cooperation and counterterrorism cooperation now? Unfortunately, yes. I think Brexit is going to have a major impact on the way uh, the European Union conducts its security business. I'm sure there will be an agreement in between the two parties because they, they are both very interested in keeping uh, European citizens secure and safe. However, this agreement is not going to be as good as the one that we have at the moment because of several obstacles, uh, legal, political and otherwise. But the fact that the British are leaving and that the European Union will be losing this culture, as you were saying, of law enforcement, police cooperation, intelligence sharing, and a lot of other things that the, the Brits have been bringing to the table on a European Union uh, police law enforcement cooperation over the past decades, it's going to have uh, an unfortunate impact on the way Europol, Eurojust to a lesser extent, and some other agencies in the European Union do things. So I think we should all feel very sorry to see uh, the British leave um, on, on the just a home affairs front. Yeah, I think it'll be a priority also for the British to uh, to get an agreement on that. Absolutely. Now, you, you mentioned um, that the Polish Prime Minister had connected the uh, terrorist attack in the UK with the migration crisis. I don't think there's any evidence to support that, but it is fair to say that the migration crisis has created a lot of strains in the EU and that people have been very alert to the possibility of terrorists sneaking into the EU disguised as, as refugees or using the fact that such large numbers of people have been on the move uh, to hide themselves uh, among them. Obviously, last year, the EU's deal with Turkey managed to stem the flow through, the, uh, through Greece and through the Balkan route. But how worried will European leaders be as they meet in Rome about Turkey's threat to, to cancel that deal? Uh, I saw that the Turkish interior minister said that Turkey could let 15,000 refugees a month into Europe. Uh, will European leaders feel that they have to take that threat seriously? And have they got any other strategy for dealing with the migration crisis other than trying to get uh, Turkey to keep a stopper in the bottle? I think we've gone a long way since last year in the way we're looking at the refugee crisis in the way Brussels or the European Union is dealing with, with its migration and security policies. And we are now at a phase in which if you wish, our reliance on Turkey is less important than it was a year ago. That said, I think it's a major element of the, the European Union's migration policy to have a good relationship with, with those that we consider allies. And uh, whether or not we should still be considering Turkey as an ally and, and, and a good neighbor that is going gonna, is gonna to keep its promises is up to, uh, for discussion at the moment. So I think uh, EU leaders should actually be quite worried about the threats of Erdogan, about the EU-Turkey's deal, which, by the way, has always been quite fragile, as we've been uh, saying from the beginning. But at the same time, I think that they've realized that they cannot only rely on unreliable neighbors, so that um, they should actually try to, to put in place a different strategy 
strategy to deal with, with the refugee crisis, including, as I was saying before, protecting Schengen external borders, boosting the use of databases, and also trying to explore what they call, uh, in EU jargon, compacts, so agreements and partnerships with third countries, which are not absolutely relying on just them closing their borders, but also on development aid and all these sort of things. So I think as serious as the threat is, uh, let's not forget that um, basically the reason why refugee flows have gone down very much since last year is also due to the closure of the so-called Balkan routes, and that's still in place. And as I was saying, there are, there are other measures that have been taken slowly but surely, which have helped the European Union coping a little bit with the crisis. Well, I think what I take away from this conversation is that even though the EU certainly does face a lot of problems, both internally and externally, it, it has taken to heart uh, something that was said a few years ago, that you should never let a good crisis go to waste, and that perhaps the, uh, the Rome summit can actually be the, the start of the next phase for the EU, and that leaders will start to focus on what they need to do to face up to some of these challenges. So I at least will be raising a glass of Prosecco at the weekend to 60 years since the Treaties of Rome, and uh, I hope that others will too. There will be also a lot of rallies in many European cities where people who are actually pro-European will also go out on the streets and celebrate it. So there is a positive message here as well. I think that the EU can toast to its success, so to speak, insofar as it's not doing it complacently, so that it also actually looks at the challenges. That's a little bit of a soul-searching, and not only, you know, just drinking champagne and eating tiramisu, as you were saying. So let's hope that EU leaders and others uh, have gotten that message and they actually put it in, in, in motion in Rome. Okay, very good. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. You can find more on our website, cer.org.uk, or follow us on Twitter at CER underscore London.